Hey, it's Peter here with my FSHD. All right. Okay. Be honest with me. How many of you had Japan topping the group and Germany going home? Seriously. Anybody? Even the Japanese? I mean, Takako's, you know, we have uh, Japan in the lab and, uh, um, you know, uh, Chris, half Japanese, you know, and uh, boy, holy cow. So we've been, we've been following them and, oh, man, the other night. Holy cow, just scream, you know, it's middle of the night. It's like, uh, just, just scream, what's going on? Um, it was the final time whistle in uh, Japan beat Germany. And then they topped it up by beat, by beating Spain today. I hope you guys caught that game. Just, I don't know, I've just always been a fan. It, it's funny, when um, when we watch the Little League World Series, that's uh, baseball, a little change of space. We always watch, um, and I watch that with uh, Takako and uh it's just interesting how, um, you know, fundamentals, these just sound fundamental. You don't have to be the biggest, the most athletic. You just, you know, but sound fundamentals, hard work, practicing, um, just being solid. You know, it's not the flashiest, uh, you know, it's worse, but yeah, you even take some of the professional ball players that have come over. It just, and I don't know, we just really relate to that, you know, just, you know, I don't want to say slow and steady wins the race. You know, I say that too much, but just, you know, it, I like to see hard work, dogged, um, just solid fundamentals, you know, rarely making a mistake, just, uh, uh, and then, uh, performing under pressure, just paying off. Well, love it. So we're really, really stoked about the Japanese. I think they, I think they have, um, Croatia since they topped the group, they're going to play Croatia. That's a tough team. And the other team that's really impressing us is Morocco. Who had Morocco going through is topping the group. Um, Holy cow. And then uh, Belgium going home, really? And Germany going home? Man, interesting. And, oh, man, now y'all in Australia, your Socceroos. Well, they say it's the fifth most, it's the fifth most popular sport in Australia, and you're doing better. Well, it's, I don't even think it's the fifth most popular sport in the U.S. Um, it's a, but anyway, it's interesting. We'll, we'll see. Um, England made it through. Uh, and uh, I don't know, did they score a goal in regular play i don't know if they they did or not this could be the second consecutive tournament where they can't score in, in, the, in free play um nah, i just I, I tease um all right but we got the netherlands coming up and it'll be interesting anyway it's always a fun little diversion we have an international group here in the lab um you know and and at uh unr and science actually just in general science is just international it's um uh, it's unfortunately almost everybody speaks English because <laughs> it's, uh, it seems to be, well, the, the language of science, we're fortunate. Um, so here at my FSHD, uh, I got a treat for you today. I'm going to have, um, a great friend of mine, uh, uh Dr. Bob Block is going to be joining us. Um, he, uh, is the inventor of the, uh, human xenograft mouse model that, uh, we we believe is the best model um, for testing uh, FSHD therapeutics. Uh, now, again, not saying, you know, there have been many versions of xenograft. Zen what is a xenograft? A xenograft, right? We're taking cells from one organism and, and growing them in another organism, right? You can have tumor xenografts, take tumor cells from a person and grow them in a mouse. That's a tumor xenograft. Here, what we're doing is taking human uh, FSHD or healthy muscle cells and growing them in a mouse actually as a muscle. And of course, there are, you know, people have done this on a certain level since the 80s. 
uh, but just not very well and not very informative. And for dominant diseases like this, it's not very useful. Um, and so uh, actually for recessive diseases, it's not very useful either. Um, but people do it. People, <laughs> that's one of the things that academics will do. But Bob is really uh, kind of uh, built upon some of the early technology and uh, really honed in um, on making a spectacular uh really pretty pure um, model of a, a human, an intact human uh, muscle that is innervated and vascularized and, and growing and functional essentially in, in a mouse. And so, and this is really important. You know, I always tell you how weird FSHD is. It's really because it's, uh, you know, Ducks 4 is an old world specific primate um uh, old world primate specific gene um you know we're not going to be working in chimps and gorillas and or people uh eventually eventually the model organism is people when we get to the clinical trial that is you are the the, <laughs> the testa organism um but you know we got to do everything we can to have a safe efficacious uh therapeutic by the time we get to you and um one you know the the things that we need right the, the way that the therapeutic development works is uh, right. First, you have to understand the pathogenic mechanism. Then you have to get your therapeutic targets. Then you have to develop therapeutics that presumably modify either the target expression, target function, downstream of the target, whatever. We know our target in general is the Dux4 gene expression or the Dux4 mRNA if you're doing antisense or RNAi or the Dux4 protein if you're doing things like Protax or some of that, that cool little small molecule that binds ducks for that Alte Therapeutics is coming up with. And so whatever that is, so then you develop that and you test it in cell culture. And this is, we grow human muscle cells in a dish that came from biopsies from some of y'all that generously donated and see if we, you know, you see an effect there, but that's, you know, that's a very, you know, it's somewhat artificial system, but you know, could you knock down ducks for, or it's effect uh, in, in cell culture, in the lab, and then generally you go to a mouse model and that's where we kind of things get sticky. You go to animal models and FSHD because mice and actually really animals don't have the human real proper um, uh, uh, copy of the ducks 4 gene. They have ducks genes that function similarly during development, but the sequence is not conserved enough to be therapeutically uh, relevant for FSHD therapeutics. And so then that's where we were stuck. And I've told you before, you can go back and see some early podcasts where we talk about the making of an FSHD mouse, um, where Takako made, um, we put in the human Dux4 gene into mice, and that that's that's doing one thing. And that's great for testing certain therapeutics. Um, and then um, from there, we go to a large animal model of FSHD. That's where our mini pig comes in, because a mouse is very different, 25, 35 grams mini pigs around 30 grams and now you have different musculature different immune systems but again it's the same thing we're artificially putting in um an engine the human ducks 4 gene engineered into the mini pig genome and and we kind of engineer the regulation on how to how it's going to be expressed or not expressed where it's going to be expressed when so there's, you know while it is the human ducks 4 gene in these animals there's, there's this sort of this artificial nature to it and, you know, we don't know what impact it is. And that's that's really where some Bob's uh, FSHD work, some of it come, really comes into play, is that, you know, in the context of an animal model and in the context of a 3D muscle, you know, growing in a, in a system where it's innervated and vascularized, you they developed a system where you have a pretty pure human 
muscle grown in the mouse. Okay, and he'll talk a little bit about how you how he did that. And but it's a real key. Uh, it's a real key. Uh, um, a step, I think, in for therapeutic development, not just for FSHD, for anybody, because, you know, in the end, a mouse, even if a mouse has the gene, which it has most of the genes that humans have, um, you know, and you can have use the endogenous gene for your therapeutics, you know, oftentimes people find they have to humanize the mouse um, in some ways in order to see what's going on. You still don't know what's going on with the mouse metabolism, immune system, different um, muscle architecture. There's just so many things that are different. And so it's, you know, you just you just have to understand the benefits and the limitations of the system you're looking at, and you put it all together. No one model's perfect, but you put it all together, and then hopefully you go to clinic with something that has really strong chance to work, because we just don't want to have clinical trials that fail. It's not just expensive, but it's expensive for you. You're spending your time and effort, and sometimes your biopsies and, and trial. I mean, just there's so much expense to clinical trials. We just want everything to succeed or have the best chance to succeed because a lot of stuff doesn't. And a lot of it doesn't because of poor uh, preclinical work done by the teams, whether it's the companies or the academics or both working together. Either you don't have the right models or you look at your data through rose-colored glasses, as we say, and, um, and maybe you should have known better um, because you had, well, as, we, as I've said before, not everybody's goal is necessarily to um, cure or modify, do you have a disease modifying treatment? You know, sometimes that's a, just something that comes along with the, some of the financial benefits. Um, but again, solving, curing a disease, modifying disease um, course is always good business. And hopefully, um, you know, people <laughs> will take the time to do things right if the tools are available. And so we've made tools, mouse mouse. Bob is going to talk about his Xenograft tool. Um, and then of course you got this, the, the pig, the other tool after you now, after you're in the clinical trial, what else do you need? Well, you also need to have, um, biomarkers, right? Well, um, you've heard about uh, from our group, uh, academic group, Andrea had talked about interleukin six as a biomarker and a microRNA 206, mirror 206 that she found. Um, and, uh, but you know, Bob has also found, uh, a biomarker, um, that correlates with Dux4 expression in muscle cells, um, SLC34A, I believe it's called. And he's going to talk a little bit about that. So we got some biomarker discovery, some mouse model generation, and some really good stuff. And, and on top of it, you know, I I, understand, I know I get a little bit negative. <laughs> so that's just my nature. I just, like I said, I hold a grudge against people. But also, you know, um, we know who we work with and why we work with them, people that are similarly aligned. Um, you know, well, Bob's definitely in that group. He's, he was one of the first people, Bob and uh, Alexander Believ were, were the um, first two that, I mean, the only two at the very beginning that were, were were nice to us and helped us and truly helped us get into the FSHD research by providing expertise and resources um, that others wouldn't provide us. And uh, so we've always been very appreciative of Bob, really, um, you know, spread, not just generating a great model, but also spreading the technology to other labs that's uh, also a benefit. Again, that's what we do. It's great. There are others that do that as well, like Bob. And uh, but again, not everybody, not everybody out there. So um, and we do have a you know, we also do have a connection. I know Bob's not going to talk about it, um, but we do have a, a, a connection with him is that, uh, you know, the Xenograph model. Um, oh, he doesn't get mad at me for, for, for bringing this up. But, you know, the Xenograph model, uh, there's this actually gets back to, it's all part of this, the big picture 
of um of uh, us getting thrown out of UMass Medical School. How does that, you know, right? Yeah, you, you like a little bit of twists and turns in the story. You like to hear a little bit of what goes on behind the scenes and everything like that. You know, this is um, fundamentally kind of <laughs> parts of where it started is that, you know, um, you know, it started, you know, this, this idea from Bob of making the Xenograph model and he, uh, um, yeah, maybe I'll talk about this at the end. Well, I don't know. I can talk about it now. Well, anyway, I'll just briefly get you into it before we get to Bob. You know, we, we made the Xenograph model. And, of course, you got to get funding to get these things done, right? You have, you know, so so the funding was pulled from um, the Wellstone, where he originally started developing this, uh, mainly due to competitive uh, desires from other members of the of that Wellstone, which is one of the reasons we left that Wellstone as well. Um, these are these cooperative research centers that are supposed to be about collaboration and they kind of work to a point and then people realize they develop something valuable and then people get greedy and want it. And so um, some of that greed got into play and um, and uh, Bob essentially was on the out. You know, that's <laughs> good guys finish last sometimes, right? Um, not always, though. It comes around, what comes around, goes around. Um, or what goes around, comes around. Either way, you know... <laughs> things um the way it worked out is uh so bob submitted a grant to the fshd society uh and for the xenograph model to continue its development um you know it makes that at the time it's uh you know there weren't so many foundations of funding research and i don't make perfect sense it's right in the wheelhouse it's supposed to be uh you know funding resources to accelerate uh uh clinical trials, all this type of thing back in the day. And, you know, this is back 2014, 2015. Um, but the grant was, uh, was completely rejected, you know, with no explanation. Well, it turned out that somebody on the scientific advisory board of the society um, had a financial, competitive financial interest in a different model that they were developing and didn't want Bob's model to be developed and compete with them. Just the bottom line. And so they used their position and inappropriately tanked his grant. And there's one of the reasons I don't like I don't trust the society at all. And so uh it doesn't sound like the activity of someone that's working for you. Um so okay, so the so this is on ice. And um uh meanwhile, uh Bob uh, had also submitted the grant to the National Institutes of Health. And this is the you know, this is a major funder in the US, federal funding. It is the gold standard, the hardest grant to get possibly in the world. I mean, NIH funding is a 10 percentile or whatever. And the study, an independent study section with no real biases, and I was, this is before I was on study section, um, uh, scored his grant. He got a perfect score. You think about gymnastics, a perfect 10? Well, that's right. This never happens, although I, I got one before once too. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but Bob got a perfect score. The grant was deemed... So so significant and so impactful that it's unconscionable that this wouldn't be funded. And it's number one grant in the study section to be funded. So now he's back in business. Um, you know, which again tells you, you know, tells you what happens when biases and competitive interests, again, a foundation with people on board that are um, well, now they're not working for you. Okay. They're working for themselves and using their position to enrich themselves. And again, I, that's what I find unconscionable. But anyway, the system worked in the end because, um, because Bob got the grant. 
And this shows you how impactful. Again, so this is independent people saying a Xenograph model for FSHD would solve so many issues. And so he got this. He doesn't pat himself on the back, so I'm going to have to pat him on the back. That's a really amazing job to get, to get a perfect score on the grant. It shows how quality of the science and how well respected uh, he is, is um, in the field as a scientist. So what, ha what happened? I, actually, there's a little side story. He kind of um, <laughs> did actually have an investigation the University of Maryland checked out and said, what, what happened? And so um, they investigated and said, this sounds like a conflict, found out what happened. We, and we know that I won't get into the details, but, but it was a kind of a funny thing. Think about this as a roundabout way to get do, do things. The answer was that there was nobody violated any rules, even though that the, the grant was killed really just because somebody was in competing with a member of the scientific advisory board's own research. And so they wanted, they wanted to get rid of it. Um, so you say that should be illegal. That should be against the rules. And the answer was, it's not against the rules, not there, not at the FSHG society because they didn't have any rules. So that's the out. It's kind of like, well, you, you killed somebody. Yeah. Well, yeah, you'd think that would be bad. But you know what? We don't have a rule against killing anybody, so yeah, it's cool. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, really? Um, and just like that's essentially that's the cop out. No rules were broken because we don't have any rules. All right, and you start to wonder why we work with some people and why we don't work with some people. Well, I tell you what, we <laughs> sure as hell don't work with them. I don't know what the rules are now. I don't care. When somebody shows me they can't be trusted, they can't be trusted ever. Um, but anyway, the system worked because Bob got his grant through NIH. And um, so he had that grant and uh, he was going. And so, but he had a collaborator on the grant. And this collaborator, interestingly enough, was also on the SAB for the FSHD Society. And now this is a collaborator that's working with him because this collaborator was a really good person and a really great scientist who's like, this needs to be done. So I'm still going to help Bob out. And so they helped Bob out. Well, the screws got put on them really tight. The screws got really put on this person and to try to get them to quit working with Bob. And again, to try to stop development of the Xenograph project that was in competition with this, this other person. Here's the dirty detail, right? And so um, I can tell you this because it's all true. Take me to court. I would love to air this out in court. Um, <laughs> so I'm not the only names, but I'd love to put the names out there. I thought about it, but I, I won't. I, I won't. I won't put uh, most many people in the field know who know who this is. But anyway, so the screws were put on this individual to 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 basically leave the grant. So so this person contacts me, and they say, you know, Peter, um, it's just <laughs> I just don't want to deal with this crap. You know how to do what needs to be done. Can I transfer my role on the grant to you? And that way the grant still gets done and all the pressure comes off of me. And I said, sure, no problem, whatever. And they did that basically because um, <laughs> they didn't know my personality. You know, you need somebody who's up for a fight, we're up for a fight. And so they just were just, you know, lending towards the end of their career and just didn't want to deal with this kind of political crap anymore. And it was just expedient. It wasn't worth it. It's a small amount of money. The main thing is the acknowledgement that this project needs to get done. The field needs this mouse model made. Bob's the guy to do it. Great guy to work with. And the politics that are trying to kill it, where they're trying to work around it. So we're like, cool, we will help you. Well, that's when the screws got put on me at UMass now, at UMass Medical School. 
all of a sudden the same thing to me. Hey, you got to stop working with Bob. We don't want Bob. You know, you can't work on this grant. And we had a, a big meeting about this and they put the screws on me and said, you either quit working with Bob or we're throwing you out of the Wellstone and we're throwing you out and we're going to, and I said, I, and they said, you know, stop working with your collab, you know, stop collaborating with these guys, this really good person that has helped you out and has, is developing a really important tool for the field, you know, or else, <laughs> and, you know, and I just, I told them to go cram it with walnuts. And evidently I told them that in an <laughs> unprofessional, inappropriate way and strongly enough that they use that um, as evidence not to just throw me out of the Wellstone because I refused to stop working with Bob and wanted to continue working on his project and development of the model. But they said by doing that, I was undermining these people um, at the Wellstone and that I had professionally embarrassed them with my, what I had done in a closed meeting that was supposed to be where we air all our grievances. Again, you can't trust anybody. <laughs> hey, we're going to have this closed meeting where you can say whatever you need to say so we can hammer it out. You say what you mean to say. And oh my God, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> You're out of here, pal. You embarrass somebody. Yeah. You know, telling the truth embarrasses someone to such a point that they're humiliated professionally. It's because they deserve it. Um, but anyway, so now they're throwing us out of UMass all because, um, so, you know, you guys wonder why I'm angry. You wonder why um, I support the people that work with us more. I mean, we have loyalty to, to the good people and the hell with the bad people. And, and you know what? Um, and some of those bad people not want to be super friendly with me because we got pigs and we got other cool tools. All of a sudden, no, we didn't mean it. Well, we'll see. You know what? Yeah, we'll see. I don't want to, again, they know I don't want to get in the way, but, you know, this is the kind of path. You wonder why things go slow? You know, people, I tell you time and again, those that can be helpful aren't as helpful as they could be. And even worse, some of those that are supposedly helpful and telling you they're out there working for you are getting in the way. Okay. And um, for a reason that have nothing to do with helping to cure FSHD. But the good news is, man, not only are we indestructible, we're unstoppable. You know what? We go over it, go through them, and um, continue to do so. Bob's a great guy. I'm going to have him on in a sec. It's a fantastic researcher, a muscle biologist, biochemist, cell biology, um, spectacular career at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And you know what? He, he doesn't back down either. You know what? He pushes through, and I give him all the credit in the world because the Xenograph model for FSHD is, was a, is a key to getting – good therapeutics and the best therapeutics to clinic and to you. Okay. And you know what? People tried to stop them. They, they lost in the end. <laughs> okay. So the, the good guys, good guy wins in the end. Okay. So that's the take, you know, but man, it's not an easy ride. That's why I tell you, boy, it's a, the book's going to be called war. I was thinking about the, the book that we're going to write at the end is war. How FSHD was cured in spite of all of those trying to help. You know, something along those lines. That would be my book, man. Not as good as uh, Carice's book, uh, CRISPR Evolution, but almost, you know. Anyway, check it out. We got Bob Block here, um, and I, I hope you enjoy it. All right. Thanks. All right. So um, with me is uh, Dr. Bob Block. from the. He's a professor in the Department of Physiology, right, in the University of Maryland mm -hmm. School of Medicine. Yep. And um, thanks for joining us uh, today, Bob. It's always fun to speak with you, Peter. 
<laughs> well, you guys have, you know, I'm not sure Bob's a big podcast list, listener of the MyFSHD podcast because he, he knows everything I talk about. But um, <laughs> but people have heard about you because we talk about animal models and we talk about um, one of the things I like to do on the podcast is um, also pull back the curtain a little bit on how research is done, you know, um, and uh, everything from how the foundations work to how labs work to collaborations work. And uh, they've, you know, one of the reasons I've asked you to be on is because, so, you, you know me, sometimes I tend to be a little negative on things. I can get a little off track and, but I've let everyone know that you're one of, you're, you're one of the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I mean, you, Peter. <laughs> well, and, and I mean that really, and not to really categorize people, but I remember, do you, I don't know, do you remember first meeting us? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I remember, and I remember meeting most people, and one thing that stands out about meeting you, first of all, was you were nice to us. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really true. It's really true, is that when we were breaking into the field, so you've been in muscle biology, you know, we're outsiders to muscle. We're outside to FSHD, mm -hmm. and it was a very closed group of researchers. And we came in and thought, well, we need some help. And I'm talking around. And I remember being at one of the FSHD Society International Research Consortiums. Mm -hmm. And we just, people just wouldn't talk to us. Some people who are our best friends now um, mm -hmm. <laughs> weren't, weren't at the beginning. But you, you were you're not only just friendly to us, but you also had Takako come to your lab and and you tell how you know she learned some histology, and you were just so willing to share your expertise. And it's just, um, it just for me personally, I think about how to conduct myself in the professional world, and I think of you. That's how you conduct yourself. Part of the job is to help the rest of the gang bring the bring the next bring you know new people into the field. You spread your expertise, not not clamp it. I've really appreciated all the help you've given us throughout the years. Well. Uh, it, the feeling is mutual because, you know, our collaborations have been very productive and uh, I hope they continue to be that way. Oh, yeah. And it's fun working with you and Takako and the people in your lab. Uh, and for me, uh, it's not just about bringing people in. I mean, that's very important. If you don't have young people coming in or people coming into the field from different backgrounds, you really, the, the field becomes impoverished go around in circles thinking about the same things over and over again. When new people come in, they bring new ideas, they bring new approaches. When young people come in, they bring a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm. And especially with FSHD, a, a lot of young people have relatives who are affected by oh, yeah, sure. Yep. So Patrick Reed, for example, who first got me interested in this, in FSHD has two brothers uh, with FSHD and he's been caring for them uh, throughout their adult lives. So this really means a lot to people um, when they get when they get involved in, in studies of, of FSHD. I think uh, it makes a huge difference to know that they're welcome and that we need their help and that you know we have no lock on the truth. Uh, <laughs> Well, they're not a threat, right? So they're being viewed as a threat. You're going to come in and steal some of my grant money or you're going to steal whatever ideas. It's like, it's actually a bonus for everybody. I mean. Absolutely. 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 And I've always enjoyed having visitors to the lab, people that we can help uh, you know, 
Takako came, other people have come, uh, people have come to the lab like Takako uh, to get some of the information about the, the uh, xenografting methods right. that, that we have. Uh, and it's important to spread this information because if it's kind of sequestered just in my lab, nobody else can use it. And the whole purpose of doing the research that we did was to make a useful tool. Making tools. For other labs to yep. use. No, that, that some of the themes that I, I run on this are developing tools. Yeah. And, and also, you know, the most common question I get from frustrated patients is why is it taking so long? And, and sometimes the answer is not everybody's as helpful as they could be. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And I don't know what to do about that. I mean, it's partly it's a matter of personality. You know, no. some people are more private. Some people are more open. Uh, you're about the most open person I know in the field. <laughs> that's one of the reasons I really enjoy working with you. Um, but, but at least you know, get out of the way, right? I mean, I mean, don't get in the way. If you don't want to share, you don't want to collaborate, that's fine. But don't get in anyone's way either. That's uh... Uh, Yes, that's true. That's true. And I, I think we could both name a few people who <laughs> have left the field because they weren't uh, supported appropriately and weren't welcomed by the more senior people around. Oh, I yeah. think that's a shame. I mean, there's, there's a lot of yeah. talent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we've we've lost some of it, unfortunately. No, people, I don't, you know, there's, you know, it's such a tough disease to work on. Now, you actually have other experts, you know, so I can actually ask you a little, you work also on dyspareunopathies, right? Is right, that, right. So, so that's, that's the other a, main disease that we look at. It's a much rarer disease than FSHD. It's called, uh, the two more common forms are called limb girdle, muscular dystrophy, type 2B, and Miyoshi myopathy. Okay. Uh, so those are the two more common forms, but it's really only one in a hundred thousand, one in two hundred thousand people. But it's, it's a very like different disease. But but it's just very different. That's one of the things I like to try to is that FSHD is just really unusual in its pathogenic mechanism as opposed to these other muscular dystrophies, right? And the way you approach it. And so it's just tough. It's almost got to rethink. We didn't have to rethink anything, but I'm curious about yourself. You got kind of the two different, you got the two, it's a different way to think research-wise, or or is it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because in, in the end, I have to think for a second at least. Absolutely. That in when you're missing a protein, like in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, you're missing dystrophy. In dysferulinopathies, you're missing dysferulin. So the, the obvious question is, you know, how can I get that protein reintroduced into the cell? If I can do that, I can fix the muscular dystrophy. Uh, unfortunately, in muscle, a lot of the proteins are quite large, so you can't use normal gene therapy approaches, at least with the vectors we have now. And so um, people have been thinking about ways of finding mini proteins or fragments of proteins. And that's really the direction that we've taken in terms of dysferlinopathy. We found that if we take one end of the molecule and put it back into muscle, uh, it seems to rescue the phenotype. So the calcium signaling becomes normal again and membrane repair becomes normal again. So those are the two assays that we've been using together with the Noah Weisleder at uh, Ohio State. Ohio State, right. Okay, yeah. No, yeah. So, But that's a difference. So you're thinking, uh, the way I kind of describe it sometimes is, the difference being you, you built a house and all the bricks are bad and you're trying to now repair the, the house is built and you got to repair the bricks that are there mm -hmm, versus, mm -hmm. 
versus FSHD, where the bricks are pretty much okay, and every once in a while one kind of explodes, you know, and eventually the house comes down. Right, right. So, and so the question there is, how do you turn off the mutant gene? And obviously, your lab has made major strides that way. Fulcrum is kind of incrementally getting at it through the Lusmapamod trial that they're looking at. Um, and it's tough. It, it is very tough, especially when when it's an epigenetic. Uh, phenomenon as so, well as the genetic. Yeah. So, so that's the other answer. Why does it take so long? It's because science is hard. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, really, I mean, it's just, you know, lots of things can go wrong. You know, you, it's the scientific method. It's not, you make a hypothesis, you test it out and you analyze the results and you readjust as you go. That's just how science is. And yes, yes. And it can be frustratingly so. <laughs> and especially nowadays, you know, with the uh, so-called supply chain difficulties getting oh, yeah. supplies for the lab has been a challenge too so everything is taking twice as long to order and that sets back our progress too yeah you just don't you know it's really you just don't even expect it i remember you know we, we couldn't get plastics in to do cell culture um things i was actually sending we make our own real-time pcr reagent it's a it's um, to explain to everybody when we check gene expression levels, you know, it's DNA to RNA to protein in general. And we look at how much RNA there is that tells us how active a gene kind of a readout of that is. And we have an assay to detect that. And uh, when COVID came on, that, that was just gone. I mean, everybody was mm -hmm. sending that, you know, the, the real-time PCR, that the detection part of it mm -hmm. um, was used for some diagnostics and some screening and some stuff. And you couldn't get it. I make my own, but I was actually sending that around the country to some really? lab. I actually sent something to Mass General. It's uh, to a clinical lab. Well, because mm -hmm. people couldn't get it. You just don't think about right. how these things that have nothing to do with your research, right. nothing to do. Right. And, um, all of a sudden, you can't. Even the, even the pigs, we're making these mini pigs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were just telling us they're having trouble. They can't, uh, um, whatever they, they clone growing. Um, it's done by somatic cell nuclear transfer, mm -hmm. where you're mm -hmm. essentially cloning, mm -hmm. and uh, it's really sensitive to the plasticware and to the to the the, the surface. You, you coat the surface of the plastic with things like collagen or some some things that mm -hmm. you know, make it nice for the cells to grow on. I know you mm -hmm. and. Uh, they just can't get it. It's been back ordered for like six months and that's slowing down the pig project. So, I mean, there's a lot of things. And why, why is that? I don't know. Well, I have a, I have a, an even worse story to tell you. you. I think you remember this. You know, we developed the xenografting methods. So yep. we're talking about that, yeah. human, human muscle tissue in mice. And so there are three or four steps that are really important to follow in that. The first is um, you have to irradiate the, the hind limbs of the mice. That prevents the mouse muscle from regenerating after you damage it. Then you damage it. And our original uh, method used cardiotoxin that That's we got right. from Sigma. Sigma, you know, was you know, the standard. And uh, everybody had used cardiotoxin as a way of killing off muscle fibers for decades. And that, that's like cobra house. venom, right? Isn't that spitting cobra venom or something? It's a it's a mix of venom of venom components from Naya Mosambika. So it's a cobra. Um, yeah. So and you know it venom in general have you know a dozen or more different components. So you get this mix from magic mix from Sigma, and it worked like a charm. Uh, you know, we can get into the later steps afterwards, but 
that's an essential thing. You got to get rid of the mouse muscle so you have room for the human muscle cells to to plant themselves in the in the muscle tissue and start to grow. Well, five years ago, Sigma took the cobra venom, the cardiotoxin, off the market. Why? Because it was all made in Israel. Really? They milked the milk the venom, they milked the snakes to get the venom. And the Israeli government decided that this was a biohazard and they didn't want it produced anymore. Really? Done, finished. Oh, yep. I thought it was South so, Africa or some supply. I didn't know. I never knew why it came off the market, but it was just, I remember it would come up in study site. People say they use cardiotoxin. I would be like, where are you going to get it? Mm-hmm. Yep. So where do you get so, it? You know? <laughs> so we spent something like two years checking other venom products from a variety of producers. We were working with Fulcrum at the time uh, and we used methods to determine what the major components of the commercial cardiotoxin was. We found one that was about 85% of the total. Fulcrum made it for us synthetically. It didn't work. None (laughs) of these things work. So that's right. Uh, I, I kind of remember that because I was on the SAB for Fulcrum at the time. And I remember uh-huh. when that happened because the, um, and then they, I never had heard how that ended. I knew it didn't work. Yeah. So I didn't realize how complex the components were. So you synthesize it all in vitro. It's just not the same as getting it out of the snake, you know, or whatever. The single major component we couldn't. And, you know, at that point I gave up because were you going to synthesize the four or five other components and start mixing them together? It, you know, the alchemy was just too much for me. So what are the regulations on running on, on synthesizing snake venom in the lab from scratch, too? <laughs> in, in Israel, they probably ban it completely. But who knows? I mean, it's oh, it was. But it's it just was, yeah, that's, that affected like tons, though, of, of neuro. I mean, everybody in neuromuscular disease research used mm-hmm. cardiotoxin for mm-hmm. killing off muscle for. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, a bunch of labs also use barium chloride. And that's eventually what we ended up turning to. It's not quite as reliable, doesn't kill off quite as many of the muscle fibers. There's a little bit more variability associated yeah. with it, at least in our hands. No, our hands too. It's variable and the mice really are not the happiest yeah. sometimes. If you it. give, you'll kill the mouse if you give you give too much. Right. Of course, you want to give as much as you can to get rid of as much of the existing muscle as is there. Yeah, so we this just took months and months and months of work. To, to figure out that we really just had to revert to the to the barium chloride. So less, the other, uh, less, a less efficient method, really. Basically, you're forced to use a method that's not quite as good and re- right. almost reinvent the wheel in some, some ways. And, right. Uh, right, right. So the, the wheel and all its spokes, yes. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about it is, another thing I always say is the devil's in the details when it comes to doing research as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you had mentioned the irradiation part. That was a key part of you. I know that people, you know, so we're, we'll talk a bit about, I've talked about mouse models and how FSHD is kind of, mm-hmm. you know, very human specific. You're not going to have a natural mouse model. Mm-hmm. And I'd be curious about um, thoughts on some of that. But uh, uh, also just, you know, you've made a great model, the Xenograph model, where we grow a human muscle, either FSHD or healthy, you know, muscle in the mouse. And so you have a live mm-hmm. mouse with a human muscle and, and, um, you know, but if you don't do it right, you know, you don't, you don't get anything <laughs> you <can't, laughs> as you, you probably experienced too. 
Yeah. <laughs> so you can get a mess and you can get, um, and then there's by ways you've also done to improve upon this. So, so it was kind of interesting that you, I, I've been kind of curious how you ended up going down this path because again, your background coming into FSHD. Um, well, first off, I want to, okay. I, I'm, I'm not very professional at this. I, I go all over, you know me, I go all over the map. Me too. <laughs> so you got into FSHD. So you're in dyspareunopathies, um, you know, calcium signaling. You're um, not FSHD, but a patient got you, introduced you to FSHD, a patient family of a patient, a patient's family, right. Patrick Reed. Right. I remember right. Patrick, but, mm-hmm. you know, I like to tell people out here, I got into this because of Ryan, you know, Ryan Wobbles mm-hmm. in my lab with FSHD and that, you know, it's just amazing what one person or you know what impact you can have and your family can have you know um because the the xenograph model that you created and we'll get into why we needed to create that has had such a huge impact on therapeutic development preclinical testing and getting things to clinic and it's going to continue to and you know i'm not sure that you would have gotten into fshd or even created this if, if it wasn't for patrick you know and his brothers having the disease that's absolutely true. In fact, when he first started telling me about the disease, I, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, Same. <laughs> I didn't realize it was so common in the human population. You know, I, I'm basically a biochemist and cell biologist by training and background. And I got into muscle because I was just fascinated by it. Um, initially to look at how uh, the neuromuscular junction forms. So that's the connection between the nerve in the muscle that allows the nervous system to induce muscle contraction. Um, And slowly I realized that a lot of the methods that we had developed for that could be used to look at uh, models for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Mm -hmm. And that's when Patrick uh, came into the lab a few years after that. And he said, well, you've been working on Duchenne. How about thinking about FSHD? Uh, And I said, you know, what's that? (laughs) Exactly, my same response, yeah. Where can I read about it? So he got got me a bunch of references. And that was around the time when people were localizing the the genetic defect to the end of chromosome 4Q. It was just about that time. Mm -hmm. So Patrick got me involved in it. His interests were were actually in protein chemistry, and he wanted to identify the proteins that were missing or overexpressed or altered in FSHD muscle tissue. And ultimately, he did a lot of work on that. Uh, but, and that's what got us involved in the Wellstone pro- project in the first place. Right. So the first five years of the Wellstone, I was one of the, the co-investigators with right. Charlie Emerson. <clears throat> and the main goal of the, of the Wellstone, technically at least, was to produce a bunch of cell lines that the field could use to study the disease because they weren't available back then. This but there is, just no reagents. I remember getting into FSHD. Yeah. There was, unlike uh, unlike uh, Duchenne or any of these others mm-hmm. where they had mouse models for 20 years, or actually mm-hmm. I think the, you know, some some of these um, congenital mouse models have been around since the 50s, you know, natural mouse models, mm-hmm. dog mm-hmm. models, mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff, cell lines from patients, bang, mm-hmm. natural history mm-hmm. studies, all of this stuff. And FSHD had nothing. Zip, right. So. I thought that was great. And, you know, Charlie and his group did a very good job of of deriving these cell lines from different biopsies that Catherine Wagner provided. Mm -hmm. So it was a really good collaboration. And, you know, as these were moving along and Woody Wright at 
uh, in Dallas. Oh, that's was, right, Woody. Yeah, was uh, getting ready to immortalize them. Uh, you know, genetically by introducing the genes that would keep them growing basically forever. Uh, I I just popped up at one of our annual meetings and said, "Look, you know, we're using methods in my lab that will prevent muscle regeneration and kill off muscle." We were doing that to look at muscle injury models at the time. Uh, all we have to do, <laughs> all, <laughs> is... Spoken like a PI, is, a true PI, all we got to do. Right. All we got to do is take those, do the same thing with mice that we're doing with rats, and then put in the cells that you guys are developing. That's all we have to do. So everybody kind of nodded and said, yeah, maybe. Uh, and but it stuck in my mind that this would be something that would be really valuable in the long term because it was before any of the mouse models came out, and it would be great to have actual methods to to generate human muscle tissue in an experimental animal, not just for FSHD, although that was our primary uh, goal at the time, but any muscle disease. Well, so um, so that is particularly important for FSHD because. Again, you know, I being on study section, looking at grants. I mean, basically, you have a mouse. So the Duchenne mice have they have dystrophin, very similar to human dystrophin. You mutate mm -hmm. the dystrophin, you get a Duchenne phenotype to some degree, and just mm -hmm. you know, almost every other gene that you got in humans, right, is going to be most of the you're not that far from a mouse, except for FSHD, and except so there's for no FSHD. there's right. no natural model because it's just that old world primate specific and and so there's just no um so while it's always good to have human muscle for these other diseases ultimately because a lot of things i think do fail because there are enough differences between mouse and human obviously mm -hmm. <laughs> because we're that's why they're mice and that's um, why we don't but, have tails right that's why, <laughs> although some of them may be more clever i don't know <laughs> you, give and take on some <laughs> you, of these things, you get to think that after a while huh? yeah you pay enough attention to the news you kind of wonder what are you like man the mouse <laughs> maybe got a good thing going um but but we gotta we, we actually gotta you gotta you know, grow, how are you going to grow, you know, or have a mouse? Because even, you know, honestly, you know, even the transgenic mice we've made, and if you guys were interested, go back to like one of the early episodes, episode four, I talked with Takako about the making of FSHD mouse, mm -hmm. transgenic mm -hmm. mouse, where we put the human Dux4 gene into the genome of the mouse and you express Dux4, but, but that's mm -hmm. still an artificial context. Mm -hmm. FSHD is an epigenetic disease, epigenetic, we actually don't really understand everything that controls or even most of what controls the endogenous human locus. And so at the end mm -hmm. of the day, if you want to study how Dux4 is regulated or you want to target how Dux4 is regulated, which is what Fulcrum's proposing and presumably doing with their P38 inhibitor, mm -hmm. you have to be in a human cell or you just don't know what you're missing. And so uh, you really basically filled an enormous gap in the field by, you know, going now, you know, in some ways you feel like, why isn't that, why didn't anybody else think of this? Or you know? Oh, well, I mean, I think other people did think of it. They just weren't doing it the right way uh, for, you know, not, not to fault them at all. We were lucky. We kind of came at it from the experience we had with muscle injury and finding that, you know, muscle recovers from injury in different ways and that you can prevent recovery after a certain injury by irradiating the muscle. You know, you know we, so we had that background already set. Other people have been injecting 
uh, dystrophic cells, muscle cells into, into mice. Helen Blau did it, you know, decades Great. ago. Uh, Peter Kim tried to set up a whole clinic, I think, at uh, in Tennessee someplace, where he would treat treat Duchenne kids with myoblasts from healthy individuals. Oh, sure, yeah, and that, yeah. The, you know, people have been trying to do this for a long time, um, but our goal really was to get pure human muscle fibers. It wasn't to get the mixed fibers that Helen Blau found or that other people had generated too. Uh, Jacques Tremblay and his collaborators in, in, uh, in uh, Canada. Uh, other labs had been, and the French labs also, uh, Vincent Mouly and his collaborators. So I'm going to, let me just explain to everybody listening here, if you're not familiar with the, so, you know, skeletal muscle is multinucleate. Basically, when you, you have cells fused together to make these multinucleated fibers that um, it's going to be your skeletal muscle fiber. And if you have a, a mouse cell and a human cell are more than happy, and they will actually fuse together. And so um, if you take human cells and just inject them into a mouse, well, for, you know, there's a couple of caveats. You take human cells into a mouse, you end up with a mouse-human hybrid. And who knows what effect that, you know, especially if you're looking at a healthy mouse and a, and a diseased cell and you put the two together, you know, you're kind of fixing it already artificially. So that's mm -hmm. not a great system. And the other thing that you guys all need to know is you know, when we get, you know, if you've participated in these programs, first off, thank you. Oh my God, I've seen muscle biopsy. Have you seen a muscle biopsy from a person? Even a needle biopsy. I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I not, thank, thank you to everybody who's had one. Have you had one to right. yourself? I have had one, yeah. Oh man, I, I volunteered to be a healthy control. My haplotype's no good. I'll still do it, but I've seen a few of them. And, you know, those of you that have participated and given muscle biopsies to whether it was the Wellstone at Johns Hopkins or around the country or anywhere, you know, I mean, you guys really put, that's really getting in the game. That is more that power is, to you all. Thank you all. Yeah. yeah you're much. making that, that is so important. And these, and our goal is to make sure these tools now are widely used. And so, mm -hmm. So what Bob had mentioned about immortalization. So when you take primary cells, these are cells just directly out of you. You can only, they only divide a, a, a really kind of relatively small number of times before they basically can't divide anymore. And that's because your your telom, your, your chromosomes are linear. And every time you make, every time you replicate, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. And at some point they're too short and they, they basically, the cells um, go senescent and, and stop replicating or they could die. And so a really brilliant scientist who unfortunately recently passed away in the past year, Woody Wright. Woody was just a great, I actually got to meet Woody a few times, great guy. Um, and he's a telomere expert. I mean, he, he was kind of Mr. He and um, um, uh, who, uh, Woody and who else was down there in Texas with him? It was Jerry Shea. Jerry Shea. Jerry Shea, the two of them just did some great telomere work and immortalization work. And, and, and Woody was a really great guy. And he um, was immortalizing these primary muscle cells that were obtained from these these um, from you, y'all who who donated, and um, so that we'd have an unlimited resource. And so that because then you could just keep, keep culturing them if you do it right. Again, they, they're going to get old eventually to some degree, but you get a lot more culturing, a lot more um, uh, uh, number of cells, so that you can. And this is important when you do your experiments because. If you're doing a drug screen or you're doing a knockdown of an antisense or you're testing something in a mouse, like Bob's a xenograph mouse, you know, if you have to change the cell line every time from a different patient, that's a variable that you throw into the experiment and you're just not exactly sure what you're looking at. And 
And so to have the same, to be able to test, you know, a thousand tries and the same cells from the same person, it's really valuable or to have a bunch of mice. And so, so immortalizing was really great. And, and, and that also highlights what the Wellstone originally was supposed to be. I'm not sure what it is now, but originally bringing experts together, bringing people from, you know, to kind of synergize and 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 stimulate collaborations that maybe wouldn't have been there otherwise. And so you and Woody got together and he, you know, he made some cells that came from the you know, Catherine and Charlie, immortalized them, and then you're going to use them to make mice. And the key to the right. mice is because they're immortalized cells from effort, they're going to be human and you're going to be able to make as many of them as you need. It's time consuming. Right. <laughs> Boy, is it time. As you know, yes. <laughs> as we know. But but that's important because now you can have 20 mice if you need them or 59 mice if you need them with a human muscle that's FSHD from the same donor. And you can test your therapeutic under different conditions. You can have properly controlled experiments. And yeah. so this was just really great convert to me, the, the, the generation of this model, which is to me one of the huge, well, I don't know what the proper English is. I'm horrible at the relievers of bottlenecks. It's a bottle. He basically took out a bottle, a huge barrier mm -hmm. in the field in the clinical mm -hmm. development, creating this. And it just all kind of came together. And to me, it was, this is what these kind of large collaborations were supposed to produce and then right. get it out to everybody. Right. So make the tools available, the cell lines, the mice and the methods uh, and ways to as you help develop ways to study them, you know, quantitative ways of assessing how severe the, the disease state was mm -hmm. uh, with biochemical or molecular biological tools. Yep. So no, this is actually, you know, so now not everything always is as smooth as we like to think, well, you know, but um, the important thing is you got the model, but not only did you make the model, but then you made an improvement on it. Right, this I meant, right. you know. So, how where did this come from? This idea come from? Oh, explain this is what really, it is, real briefly. This is another example, I think, of what synergy in science is all about. Um, I had a guy in my lab, Joseph Roche, who's now on the faculty at Wayne State in Detroit, who was trained as a physical therapist. We were, you know, we were getting um, the xenographs to work, but. The, the fibers that were forming were relatively small. They weren't well compacted. Uh, and they, they, there weren't a lot of them. You know, there were a few dozen per mouse with the cell line that Woody gave us to work with originally. Um, Roche says, he likes to be called Roche, not Roche, Joseph. Yeah. Roche says, you know, in the clinic, when we have people who are having a hard time regenerating their muscle after, after an injury, we give them electrical stimulation. Why don't we try it? Lo and behold, he tried it. He worked out the method to, you know, to electrically stimulate the muscle a few times a week for, you know, on and off for a half an hour, just a light workout for those of us <laughs> who may or may not go to the gym. And sure enough, the size of the, of the grafts doubled or tripled in and they became much more um, normal in appearance. They looked like healthy muscle, even if they came from FSHC patients. They looked like healthy muscle. They were, you know, kind of uh, orthogonal rectangles, uh, pentagons, hexagons, packed together closely. 
with very little connective tissue, well uh, served by the capillary capillaries that bring the nutrients to the muscle. They were innervated. Uh, they did everything. And the FSHD tissue, as you showed in our collaboration, was expressing all the FSHD related genes that uh, you looked at. Uh, as uh, you and Takako showed also, it has the same, the muscle has the same epigenetic properties yep. with a reduced methylation in the 4Q region. Looks so just like perfect, probably the person that came from, you know? It's, it looks exactly like what it, the people they came from, exactly. Yeah. Despite the immortalization, despite everything that we did in the mouse, um, and despite the fact that they were grown for, you know, weeks and weeks in Charlie's lab, everything replicated itself when it, when it, when it got to the mouse and, and, and grew up and matured. And we were very fortunate that there was no, there was no way of knowing ahead of time that this was actually going to work. Well, it's great because it's one of those things, you know, it's just, I remember that coming out and it's like, wow, those are really looking good. And, and I always like to say similar people find, find each other, people with similar mentality because Roche works with us now and he actually built us one of the contraptions to. Oh, uh, really? Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. He actually has, he sent us uh he's a, uh, he's got a sub award on our um, CRISPR R01. I think mm -hmm. I can't remember which one of them, you know, to, to continue to develop and improve upon Mm -hmm. this type of technology and yeah, you know, he's a real seems like a really great guy and i've been so just so helpful you know it's just nice to i mean those are the kind of people you want to surround yourself with are people that are health smart innovative and helpful and and kind of can Absolutely. just kind of they just want to like what can i do you know it's it's and and it, it's good and um so we i, I really appreciate um the help from and then of course we've gone to your lab and andrea in your lab has uh um helped Takako learn how to do this technology mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we've been able to replicate it in our lab and but as I tell everyone devil's in the details there you know people are I don't want to know what the proper term would be um uh this you know people skip that irradiation step you know and um problem with that the key reason you have to irradiate you've been you know we built this thing that's about you just irradiate the legs of the of the mice and that kills mm -hmm. off their muscle stem cells so that when the mm -hmm. So that you don't get this mixture of cells and if you skip that you know people and i know people are out there doing this with if you don't have the right irradiation or if you're lazy <laughs> you know don't follow the protocol you end up with uh and and then other people use non-immortalized cells and frankly you know, we see some of these studies doing where they've their xenograft model for FSHD mm -hmm. and all they're looking at is cell death of course ducks four mm -hmm. goes down all the cells are dying because they're not right. immortalized right. they're not live and they ever said oh we have to do our experiment within you know two weeks that that's it right. <laughs> so so those of you listening that the, the reason this is beneficial multiple things you got an fshd muscle a human fshd muscle in a living mouse number one number two it's innervated it's contracted it's doing everything now it's a it's an immune compromised mouse we'll get to that in a sec but you also can check now durability of an effect and what we mean mm -hmm. by that is we grow cells in culture, it's really hard to get them to go past 10, 12 days. You can really trick them to something. You can get them maybe a little bit, bit longer, but it's hard to do a long-term study. Um, so you need an animal model. Even our FSHD transgenic mice that express Dux4, some, you know, there's some caveats to that where the Dux4 cell, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll get into that later. But what you really want to know is how long does your drug treatment work or how, mm -hmm. how durable is the effect? Because you're going to be on this your whole life. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is a good question to know. What's the half-life in human muscle? 
What's the half-life on shutting down ducts for in human muscle? What a dosing in human muscle? And you can answer all these questions with this. In fact, I don't know any other system where you could answer it because of the nature of FS mm-hmm. FSHD. So it, it, to me, it's just like one of the most valuable resources in the entire field, tools. And, and the great thing about developing tools is you're not tied to, you're not an antisense lab. You're not a small molecule mm-hmm. lab or a CRISPR lab. This helps Everybody, Everybody, anyone working on FSHG. And then you can take the technology and say neuromuscular disease. I was great. great. How can you get any better? You know, that's that's why we wanted to do it. And uh, I'm delighted that you're using it. Uh, Judy Dumonceau's lab in London is using it. Um, uh, Yi Wen Chen's lab in in DC may be using it. I'm not sure they they may have run into some technical problems there that we may have to help them sort out. It's not an easy procedure and it's very time consuming. But it's worthwhile. But it gets you where you want to be. But that's what you want to do. And this, I mean, so, to, you know, we use the Japanese um, method of, you know, it's funny. I don't know. You probably didn't catch this. Just before this, we saw, just watched uh, Japan um, beat Spain in the World Cup, by the way. I can date this. They just, wow. Yeah, 2 <laughs> on. They came back with two. And all you heard the whole time was how tenacious the Japanese were. And they were. They were just, you know, just hard work, hard work, hard work, and it mm-hmm. pays off. And that's what it is. You know, not you don't need to be flashy. You don't need to, you know, it's... And I think in science, that's, you know, just keeping at it and doing the hard work mm-hmm. because the mm-hmm. devil is in the details. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the point in making a half-ass model and using it and not getting a real result? I mean, do it, it takes a little bit more effort, but to have a really good model where you know that everything is as best as it can be to test your therapeutic. I mean, ultimately, you're going to a clinical trial. I mean, right. why, why start cutting corners? You know, do it right. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, they didn't include it in their paper, but Fulcrum actually used our model yep. to test uh, the effects of losbapamod on the DUX4 program in human muscle tissue. And they saw exactly the same effect that, that uh, they reported in cells and culture. Uh, and I think that helped them decide to move ahead into their, into their clinical trial which is turning out to be promising. I mean, it's certainly not going to be a, a cure. You and I have talked about that and the possible mechanisms involved, which seem to get more complicated by the day as new papers yeah. come out. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a complicated it, target. <laughs> it, it works at, at least, and I believe Robbie Tawil and you know the other clinicians who were involved in these, in these trials People feel better, and they have an increased range of motion after the after the drug treatment. So, you know, with any any new treatment, we have to be skeptical. How long is it going to last? That's my concern, actually. I'm concerned about yeah. short term. The long term inhibition of p thirty eight might might actually you might lose some of that benefit. Right, and you but, and I have talked about that. But you know, even if it only helps people for a year or two, while other yep. techniques uh, and methods. Are being developed in labs. It's it's a it's a step forward. But there's nothing else out there, and it doesn't appear to be detrimental. People are tolerating it really well. Right. There don't appear to be. Right. I was never a big fan of the pathway. Without you know, it's just. But um, but again, you know, it's you got to try stuff, right? You got to try stuff, and you you know, and providing you know the biotech companies and big pharma with their tools to go ahead. You know, that's uh, mm-hmm. they're not big too. Although I'll give Fulcrum some credit. They they have actually have done some tool development on their own as well mm-hmm. and some technology, mm-hmm. 
which yep. is a little, little unusual. Some, uh, you know, so I'll, they, they actually have been pretty invested in, in some of, mm-hmm. um, I was a little surprised because a lot of, a lot of places just use what's out there. And so right. they, yeah, so that, and uh, I was glad they brought your model. That was one of my recommendations was bringing you and your model. Thank, online. thank you, Peter. <laughs> well, it's the right thing to do. That's all we do. It's our job in, in SAB is to give advice and, and testing it out in the mouse model. But the weird thing, and I'm curious what you think about this, is like you said, the muscle is remarkably healthy. An FSHD xenograft muscle, we have to put it into an immune-compromised mouse because it's mm-hmm. a human cell going into a mouse. You don't want rejection. Mm-hmm. It's a strikingly healthy-looking muscle, though. So what do you what do you think about that? Well, it's, I think that's a complicated question. <laughs> First, that's why I let you know, answer it. <laughs> oh, thank you, Peter. <laughs> So there's been a debate about what the role of uh, in the immune system itself is in the pathogenesis of FSHD, right? Yeah. Uh, but I, my own feeling, and I'm not sure where you would come down on this, is that the disease is myogenic in origin. That means it, yep. it's coming from things that are changing in the muscle and that the immune system is responding when muscle fibers die, but that's not why muscle fibers die. Muscle fibers die because the FSHD genetic program driven by Dux4 uh, gets turned on. Yep, I agree with that. So we all agree also that the program only gets turned on in one or two or 3% of the fibers at any given time. So. You look at a muscle and 97% of the fibers look normal. A few percent look lousy. Now that typically when you look at a muscle, you go to the gym and if you were gonna look at your muscle the next day, one or 2% of the fibers might be, might be dying. There's normal turnover of muscle fibers that's related to usage to a certain extent. Uh, but in FSHD, when things go wrong, it's higher than that. It's three, maybe three percent. So, and it happens even if you're not using the muscle. But over the course of your lifetime, that adds up. It, exactly, and that's probably why you know it's an adult onset disease. In part, why it's an adult onset disease, young adults usually, and why it's progressive. But if you were to look, and you know, this is true for biopsies. Uh, Patrick saw this when he was looking uh, at the muscle biopsies that we got from Catherine Wagner, most of the muscle tissue looks normal. So how do you find a, an abnormal muscle tissue, muscle fiber in a sea of otherwise normal fibers? So you need a special stain. You might look for necrotic or apoptotic fibers, you know, with a particular marker for, with a particular marker. And what we've been doing lately is using an antibody to SLC34A2, our favorite protein. All right, I was going to get to that in just a sec. Right. Yeah, exactly, because it, the other thing we have talked about is biomarkers, and you've been well right. aware at the forefront of the biomarker field. So yeah, tell us a little about that. So SLC34A2 is one of the protein, one of the gene products that's turned on by Dux4, along with the ones that are normally assayed. And we looked at a whole bunch of the proteins that would be encoded by the RNAs that uh, people like uh, Steve Tapscott and you have characterized in FSHD muscle. Uh, And 
The only one we found so far that we can actually see as a protein, not as RNA, but as a protein in the FSHD muscle is this protein called SLC34A2. So SLC basically stands for uh, solute carriers. These are, these are proteins and membranes that move things across, across membranes that would not, the things would not ordinarily get across on their own. And SLC34A2 moves sodium and phosphate. It's typically okay. in the gut and the kidney, in epithelial cells. So it's not expressed in muscle. Okay, so uh, when you see it in muscle, it really stands out because it's really striking some of the images you have. Absolutely. And you see, we see them and we see it in about one and a half percent of the fibers in a in a in a in the xenografts. Yeah. And about half of those look perfectly normal. They're beautiful fibers. The staining is all a complex reticulum that tells you that everything inside the fiber is still pretty much as it should be. And the other half are dying. They're, they're necrotic or apoptotic. It's hard. To, we, we haven't distinguished yet. So um, we've been looking at this protein a lot under, under different conditions. We find it in serum. We find it in the serum of the mice that have the FSHD grafts. And we find it in serum of patients at an elevated level compared to uh, healthy controls. Is, is that published yet? No. Okay, I was gonna say, because I, okay, because the serum yeah. marker is really what we want. We really, really Absolutely. want a serum marker so we don't have to give, uh, get muscle biopsies from y'all out Absolutely. there in your clinical trials. Absolutely. The, the, a, a serum biomarker would be great if we could be sure that we're actually seeing, for example, in a patient, as he or she loses muscle, the, the marker goes up. And as treatment is introduced, CRISPR or losmapamod or whatever, the marker goes down again. We have to do linear studies like that on the same subjects because the variability within the human population, you get about a two to three fold variab variability in the amount of this protein from one person to another normally. The mean goes up. In the, in the patient population, but the spread is too big to be able to say, okay, this tells you, yes, this person has yeah. FSHD, or this tells you, no, this person is healthy. Right. And interleukin-6 turned out, you know, is, is like that. That's the one Sabrina Sacconi published with us right. and found in the right. mouth. And right. the other issue, though, is you also want something. It's a hard thing to do. It's a chicken and egg sort of thing. You want it to come down when ducts four levels come down and show that mm -hmm. your therapeutics working. And and with FSHD, it's a little tricky because sometimes ducts four levels come down in severe cases because there's no more muscle. The muscle, if you lose muscle, the levels come right. down as well. So you right. want to make sure it's truly responsive sure. to. And, and and that's it's almost like you can't know that that's true until you have a true therapeutic that you know works. Correct. Correct. And you know this goes back. Uh, you. I don't know if you remember one of our FSH Society meetings, Steve Tapscott basically stood up and said, the only experimental animal we could use for FSHD is people. Yep. I was a little shocked at that, but in a way he's right. I remember that. Actually, I, I tease him about that all the time. I don't tease him, but I actually point that out because that's not really, because at the time I thought he was just being kind of an ass. I thought he was just kind of flippant. And he's just kind of like, hey, just got, you're just going to have to cure somebody before we can answer these questions. You're mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. but the more you think about it, it's kind of like, actually, <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah. 
It, it can work in all our experimental models, but will it really work the way we think it's supposed to work when we get it into the patient? This is true for everything. That, oh, yeah, yeah. Until you cure the person. Clinical. So, We've cured but, mice. Like, like the, field, the field cures mice all the time. All different diseases, you cure mice. All the, we got a lot of healthy mice running around. That's true. That's true. And it's and it, it it's created scandals in some cases where, you know, things have gone into the clinic with tremendous brouhaha and nothing works. I mean, no, I've seen some uh, where biotonic <laughs> dystrophy, for example. I mean, no, that's that is my example I use. I've talked to the, the audience before about this, about how, in fact, that was so detrimental in the concept because I think I think the preclinical data in the mice was so convincing. It was the most solid stuff I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. I saw the World Muscle Society and was like, mm -hmm. wow. Right. I think people stopped working on myotonic because it was done. It was answered. Mm -hmm. And then three years later, you know, the clinical trial was a basically a bust. Yeah. And, and now you've lost all this time. At least in mm -hmm. FSHD, it's actually interesting that, you know, you think, okay, you got full crimson trial, you got um, all these antisense companies going. And what I've mm -hmm. found is that companies are still coming into the space. I'm, I'm actually mm -hmm. really glad that it's not this attitude of, oh, someone will have, oh, we have it done. Mm -hmm. Until you've cured somebody, you ain't got it done. And and so so people, and, and, then, and then I often will say, we'll cure it better or treat it better. Mm -hmm. So not everybody's going to be responsive to every treatment. There's going to mm -hmm. be costs. There's going to be pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. There's going to be all sorts of metrics, accessibility, I mean, gene therapy, we work on, but man, outside of US and Europe, you're not getting gene therapy, maybe in Australia, but I mean, most places it's just not, it's cost prohibitive. You're not going to do that in mm -hmm. South America, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. well, you may, I don't, I don't know. It's just, there's just some, there's all, it's going to be beneficial to have multiple modes of, or modalities of treating Absolutely. FSHD for different, mm -hmm. different people and populations. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting. And it's, uh, no, so that's, uh, so your SLC, so, so we had, uh, so the biomarkers, so that's, you know, that's another case of the mouse. Yeah, your xenograft mouse really recapitulates FSHD. It's just in a mouse. Right. Human right. FSHD, it's just fantastic. So one of the things that, I don't think I've spoken with you about this before, but one of the things that we were doing instead of looking at population differences is, at least going back to the xenograft, looking to see if we can actually identify fibers in the, in the mouse xenograft in which the Dux4 program has been turned on in a living mouse, not collecting the tissue and cutting pieces of it into sections and staining it the way we did before, but actually injecting the antibody to SLC34A2 into the mouse and then collecting the muscle tissue, or this is what we've done so far, collecting the muscle tissue and then looking at whether or not the antibody labels the cells when the, the fibers are still alive. Okay. Simultaneously, we're doing uh, imaging of the whole mouse to see whether or not we can get a large enough signal to actually see the antibody bound to the small fraction of muscle fibers that are affected. That's been dicey because the numbers are really low, but we can see the fibers in the living muscle tissue. We can oh, wow. see healthy fibers where the Dux4 program is turned on, but everything still looks normal. And we can see necrotic fibers. So potentially, you know, there are ways of imaging this in people in a, you know, in these big imaging machines that they uh -huh. use uh, that could actually be used to follow not only the 
progression of the disease by coming in with the antibody at different times and tagging it with different colors, but also by using it you know, sequentially with people to look at, you know, does Peter's treatment work to knock down the number of fibers? Does Fulcrum's treatment work? Uh, does Julie Dumoiseau's treatment work? And so we're pretty excited about that. No, that's fantastic. Cause that's, well, that touched on a couple of really important things. I mean, you know, it's a disaster to take something bad to trial because you didn't look at preclinical data properly. And so now the trial was doomed and that's cost effective and patient. But it may even be worse to have something that works that goes to trial and you don't have the capacity to determine that it works. Right. I right. mean, that's it's the same. And, you know, it's just and so understanding if that's probably the greatest thing we need to know is for because, you know, Fulcrum, my take on their trial, the the phase two B trial was, mm -hmm. we don't know if it worked. To me, it's like the worst result. We we don't really know if it works. I mean, you can make a case that it did. They saw some benefit on some assays, mm -hmm. all the other metrics it didn't. And so mm -hmm. if it says it doesn't work, okay, we're done. If it does work, you go to, I mean, it's just to have a clear cut mm -hmm. answer and to have this sort of yeah. squishy, well, it could yeah. be working. Um, well, you know, you know the, problem with, the problem with their molecular assays is that they didn't use MRI magnetic resonance imaging to, to direct where they collected the muscle tissue. Why they didn't do that, I don't know. You know, so I thought they were to, going to. I didn't, I didn't, because. They didn't. No, I just, it's just because, I mean, that's what our, I'm part now of the Seattle Wellstone, and that's, you know, what they, mm -hmm. they're doing is MRI guided, and we're doing gene expression and all these things on that. And mm -hmm. So MRI, I thought everyone was doing MRI guided now, but, but if you randomly take you know, it's kind of a weird thing because I, oftentimes people take biopsy out of like the healthiest part to get muscle too. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I just saw, you know, I don't know if you saw that, just something came, I haven't had a chance to see the paper today, but I saw something just got posted in PubMed about how from the Dutch, one of the Dutch groups about um, looking at MRI saying that the disease starts at the distal ends of the muscles, you know, and then kind of works its way towards the center. But you often mm -hmm. take the biopsy in the center of a muscle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so you could be just so so if it's starting and then stopping, but you're taking you're you're missing you're missing that completely. You don't catch mm -hmm. either, you don't catch the the destruction right. or the benefit. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, taking tissue near the tendon is is dicey. No, but MRI. Right. You know, I I, I think I, the MRI stuff that's going on and there's some great technology there. That may be a biomarker mm -hmm. in itself. Right? I mean, that's an expensive biomarker, but, but imaging. Yeah. To see, because again, FSH is so weird with a single muscle going mm -hmm. bad here and there, and then mm -hmm. it's um, it's really fascinating. As um, but technology again, you know, people ask when are we going to have a cure? You, you never know what technology is going to suddenly appear that makes that relieves a bottleneck. You know, just think of of where things were when you started in this oh, field, God. and you know, where I when I started maybe a couple of years earlier. Um, the we were on the wrong gene. <laughs> we were working on FRG1. People are still working on FRG1. That's okay. Yeah. It's an interesting gene. It's an incredibly interesting. It turned out to be really important. Actually, everything, you know, I always tell you, everything we published was right. It's just our interpretation, maybe mm -hmm. in respect to FSHD. And again, Adam, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it is a target of um, abducts four, but, uh, but it turned out to be a great cancer a lot of people in cancer study because it's really tightly associated with angiogenesis and, and actually muscle, you know, too I much. No idea, bad. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get emails from people looking for reagents and cancer because it's a, mm -hmm. it's a marker for a number of, uh, of tumors, aggressive tumors. So um, mm. I, I mean, again, the science should, you know, if you do the solid science, 
the, the data holds up. Your, your interpretations right. change as you get more information, but I mean, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing that I always have to remind myself of is we think we know something. <laughs> we think we've, we've actually proven something, but, you know, five years later, we may find out that what we thought we proved is really something completely different. Yep, but the data you should know, still make sense. It should still go together. You just got to put the puzzle together a little bit differently, exactly. you know? Exactly. But that's the way science works. And, you know, when I, I, in an analogy similar to your house uh, analogy that you, you talked about before with the bricks yeah. falling out or exploding, you know, individually, I'd like to think about science as, a, as like a big wall, like those walls that Churchill builds and used to build in his garden going nowhere necessarily, you know, each of us almost uh, randomly putting bricks in at one place or another, but eventually you have an edifice that makes sense that, you know, everything fits together, but we don't know when we're finished is the issue. Well, but that's why it's so important to reproduce and not really have an agenda when you're doing science. The agenda mm -hmm. is to get the right answer. Mm -hmm. students say, is this right? Is this wrong? Did I get the right answer? Mm -hmm. you know, did you do it right? And what's the answer? And you present, it's not always what you thought it was going to be. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it, you can't, you still run into this where people, I'll tell people, you know, even FRG1 was a case. And when we found out it was a, a it was an actin binding protein and it said, you know, the sarcomeric protein and people like, oh yeah, we had that data, but they didn't want, they were afraid it would boost the case for FRG1. And so they kind of squashed yeah, no, it's there's there's some stories out there that people I, didn't want to show data that didn't fit their model, right? And, and so they just repressed it, you know. And it turned out, right. so we published it, and these other people said, "Oh, well, that's well, we have the same thing," <laughs> and we just didn't want to publish it. Uh -huh. and, you know, just tell you know this idea that you have a you're you're formulating experiments or a program to come to a specific answer, man. You damn well better be right then, because. Um, but that's the dangerous path. You just, that's not how science should be. You gotta, the, the, mm -hmm. I, you know, the, I don't expect integrity in some fields, I guess we'll say, but in science, man, it's a, you, you gotta, that's probably the number one thing is you just have to have integrity in how you perform experiments and present results and how mm -hmm. you conduct yourself because the downside is so, so bad, you know, I mean, you could just go down. Andy, yeah. yeah, it's just, and so, you know, we, we've just been very careful. I've told people we're very careful who we work with. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you need to be similarly aligned and not just, I mean, in how you do science, basically how you conduct mm -hmm. yourself, your ethics mm -hmm. of, of conducting mm -hmm. yourself, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you'd like to think scientists are all wonderfully ethical people, but, you know, I mean. <laughs> well, I can tell you they're not. <laughs> they're not. They're not. Most of us are. <laughs> yeah, but there's a few, there's a few out there and it does, it just, you know, and it really can throw a wrench into things. But um, mm -hmm. I've told people that, you know, we go around them or go over them or whatever. And you try to try, we try to just, you know, you still get stuff done, but um, definitely I mean, we. It slows uh, things down. It slows things down slows and it th makes things difficult, tense, um, argumentative. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, you know, the, the drill that we've both been through. So. Oh yeah, no, we've been, um, yeah, no, I know we've, uh, yeah, we've, we've hinted a little bit about some of our struggles that we've had mm -hmm. and some of these things we've survived. We've survived. You've actually helped us out tremendously. We're, we'll be eternally grateful for you for um, helping us get a offer for to go to Maryland. No, I told you all that we left UMass Medical School um, mm -hmm. under, under, 
um, uncomfortable circumstances. But um, when we did, you know, Bob stepped in one of the first people to say, hey, come to Maryland and we'll get you an interview and um, and uh, see if we can get you a position here. And we uh, really, really appreciate the, you know, all the help on that respect. Getting a little bit off, tar- off track, but, you know, there's so much great muscle work at, at uh, where you are. There's so many great muscle biologists there. It's a really outstanding muscle program you got going there. It is strong and it's a great place to work. Uh, I think you would have fit in perfectly. Still sorry you didn't come, but uh, I understand why you're in Reno. Yeah, and, no, it's a uh, uh, yeah. There's it's it's tough. Actually, I was just floored by. Um, we've always felt like outsiders, and that we didn't. In some ways, we just I don't know. It's just always it was really um humbling to find. You know, actually, you know, Stephen Tapscott stepped up to get us, try to get us to the Hutch and the Chamberlains mm-hmm. up in UW, mm-hmm. and then of course Dean Birkin here in Reno, and then the, Jeff Miller tried to get you know a good friend tried to get us to the mm-hmm. School of Medicine, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. just you know when 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 times are tough, you find out who your friends are and who you can count on, and we were uh-huh. so fortunate that there were people that, that we could. Well, it's not just being friends, you know, everybody admires your science too. So that, and if the science were weak and, you know, we yeah. were friends, I wouldn't have been able to convince I wish you the best, <laughs> but I hope it works out. <laughs> no, I understand. Well, you know, you know why though? I mean, I'm not shy about this. Uh, you know, um, Takako and Carice, I, I am actually, I, I, I basically get this huge advantage of being head of a lab that basically has three PIs doing outstanding. You know, Target goes more mouse work and her epigenetic work. And then Carice. Carice, by the way, on this show is known as the our CRISPR goddess is what we call her. That's oh, her the CRISPR goddess. I will CRISPR. remember that the next time I speak to her. <laughs> she blushes every time I tell her, but she approved it. She's like, okay, that's all right, good. <laughs> um, oh, by the way, you know, um, her book is out. She wrote a, um, her novel, her sci-fi novel, CRISPR Evolution. Really, it came out wonderful. CRISPR Evolution is on Amazon. You can get and um, and uh, it's uh, she has it as she actually as an author. She knows as uh, you're gonna you're gonna laugh at this, but she's it goes as as uh, Chris Jones as the author. <laughs> I know everybody gives it cross eyes and says uh, it was my. <laughs> I, I kind of floated that idea a couple of years ago when she was really worried about um, Chris Hameda as her author name and. And looking for common name, it's kind of a funny. I it just, I'm like, oh, use Jones. Jones, we can't get a more common name than that. And she's, and she's like, oh, I like that. And actually, she's got a couple of things published that way. That her green-eyed monster is also that way. But, but, uh, but it didn't occur to me people might read too much in. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll try not to. <laughs> I don't think Takako would let let anything like that go by. <laughs> she knows. She knows. <laughs> not a huge fan. Um, but um. Uh, but anyway, it's but the CRISPR evolution. It's actually it's really it's just really fun. It's uh, you know it's uh, sci-fi. If you're I'm not sure if you're a sci-fi person or not, but sometimes yeah. I'm I'm I, I don't know. I just you know I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm still I still got to get to reading Master and Commander. I'm I feel horrible. <laughs> just like you still haven't read that book. Oh my goodness, Ask East. <laughs> I gave it to her too. She liked it. No, I know she does fantastic. You know, she's a reader. I just, oh my god, I just never, I never do anything just for relaxing and just stepping back. But, uh, but anyway, I guess again, my point was, I have fantastic people, and really, mm-hmm. it is. So, it's who you collaborate with, who you work with, who you have in your mm-hmm. lab, and you've actually been blessed with some fantastic graduate students, and you have Absolutely. some senior people yeah. that've been with you a long time. I know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, it's it's just you are kind of you're head of a lab, but you know you're at the mercy of having the your people absolutely. You know? absolutely yeah and i am fortunate too i mean uh amber muller was 
an amazingly good graduate student, Maria Traficante now is working on the biomarker stuff. She's great. Andrea O'Neill, the lab manager is, well, incomparable. I, you know, I could disappear tomorrow and the lab could still <laughs> run for at least five years perfectly well uh, without, without my interference because Andrea is there. No, that's exactly right. No one noticed. I go, well, I can go to go away for two weeks. And no one notices. It's just kind of, <laughs> as long as I respond to emails here and there, nobody really notices. Dr. Russell, everyone just kind of, they, they got everything going and doing solid science, but, uh, um, and then collaborate, you know, and it is a collaborative thing. I was counting up one time that we maybe have like 16 or 17 collaborations around, you know, so as much as, you know, sometimes I get really, yeah, the, the, the guys that get you down, get you really, uh, I, I got to, become more positive attitude because we have so many great, we work with Julie Dumont, so just like yourself, you know, and Alexander mm -hmm. Belyov, and there's just a lot of people all around the world that we work with that. Uh, so, right. yeah, so I'd like the community to know there are a lot of good people out there working for, working to, to solve this thing, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the sense of community that I, I feel working on FSHC is very strong. It's very and, strong and, and it's, it's a boost, you know, you don't think you're, you don't have to worry about sort of being out there someplace doing something that nobody else is interested in. It's it's exactly the opposite. And, and then the patient community is actually, I found to be amazing as well. It's just, um, and again, a lot of us, it's just amazing the difference. Some of these people, they're just motivated and energetic and innovative and just, you know, where can I make a difference? What can I do? And uh, we always joke, they'll say, I'll give you an arm. I, sometimes I think they would. <laughs> just like, <laughs> you know, move things forward, sure. Yeah, 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 they're wonderful. They really are wonderful. No, oh, so we've been very fortunate. Um, are you any chance you're going to be out at the Friends of FSH uh, thing? And that because I know you're funded. Doesn't Friends fund your um, Xenograph model? Or they did. Uh, that funding ended. They they didn't invite me to the to the meeting, so I, I'm not sure what the what the protocol is. I wasn't planning to go. I'll be at yeah. the Muscular Dystrophy Association meeting in Dallas. When's that? And I'll be talking. That's in March, beginning of okay. March. Oh, it's the one that was in Nashville is now going to be so every they do that every year. Uh, every other year, I think it's a okay. kind of clinical thing, but well, there's a big emphasis on clinical stuff, which is great. I mean, if you're uh, really interested in the the ways in which uh, not just clinicians but also physical therapists and and other professionals, occupational therapists. Uh, help people with uh, the different kinds of muscular dystrophy. That that kind of meeting is very useful. Okay. Uh, and I'll be talking about the xenograft model and the biomarker stuff there. Um, and the FSH Society, I think, is having a meeting in in Europe in in June. So I, I was planning to go to that. Okay. So yeah. So get around. Get to, so that's always good to. Um have times when the community, the science community can get together definitely, to discuss things. Definitely, and, definitely, yes. No, okay, well, we'll catch you. I may be, I'm not sure when I'm going to next be on the East Coast. I owe you dinner. You took us out to a great, like, uh, Burmese place or something last time I was there. Yeah, yeah, that was a nice place. Yeah, no, you it's don't, yeah, You don't owe me a dinner, though. Don't worry about it. Ah, come on. You know, we've we had basket. You know, one thing, if you guys don't know Baltimore, you know, what you're at, especially you're from, uh, 
a lot of our international listeners, Baltimore is a little north of Washington, D.C., between uh, south of New York City, and um, maybe doesn't get a lot of um, positive press, but there's it's actually a really cool city. There's um, my, my grad student, Hannah, there is uh, uh, my former undergrad is at the Hopkins there now. But the food, there's great cuisine, ethnic cuisine, fantastic mm-hmm. stuff around. And it's a really, there's a lot of history around the city. It's just a really, what did, can you tell us a little bit about? You've lived in Baltimore. How, how long have you lived in the area? Since 1980. 1980. So, yeah. I put a so plug in for Baltimore. Yeah, I don't have the accent yet. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an old Rust Belt city. Uh, uh, you know, the, it was basically built on the steel industry. Uh, but as that's been migrated away from at least the old Rust Belt towns, it's become more and more um, um, like an insurance uh, center, a hub for business investment, things like that. And like a lot of other older cities um, and cities on the West Coast as well, it's been building up a biotech sector as well around both Hopkins and uh, and the University of Maryland. So we have more and more small companies getting set up. We interact a lot with people in the Washington, in the Washington Beltway area also. Uh, the city uh, has some wonderful museums. It's got good jazz. It's got a great symphony orchestra. Uh, it's right on the water. So if you're a sailor or you want to get to the beach, it's relatively easy. Although the Atlantic is uh, an hour and a half or two. This is just a big bay. This is a big bay that comes in and Washington DC is on the same thing. You keep on going up a bit. So the bay is known for its seafood. Been overfished a bit, but crabs, uh, oysters, uh, rockfish, striped bass, Mm -hmm. uh, shad are the things that used to be very easy to find around uh, Baltimore when we first got here. But are a little harder to find now, but they're still available. And that contributes a lot to the cuisine uh, in the town. Some beautiful residential neighborhoods and some not so beautiful residential yeah. neighborhoods. But every place has got, yeah. It's uh, No, it's an interesting place. And I know that you guys were building a new building when we were looking there. There's a, a lot of really genomics going on. There's a couple of things. You had a lot of DOD work was going on for mm-hmm. um, some volumetric muscle loss, some big, there's just some really big, um, it's just an interesting collection of the type of research that can go on there. You're like sequencing these, the genome that's uh, probably, probably maybe the center of the whole, maybe the world, if not the, at least the oh, U.S., right. of, of genome sequencing expertise there, and right? Probably Claire Fraser is there, and you right. know, her focus right now is mostly on the microbiome, the gut, and other parts of your body. Uh, Alan Schuldiner is still, uh, who is a, a wonderful human geneticist who's interested primarily in uh, obesity and diabetes, and he was doing a huge amount of sequencing with the Pennsylvania Dutch and Amish population that's just north of the city. He's moved to Regeneron, but he still has a small research operation going here. Uh, And so the combination of those two groups is, it it is a very strong, uh, very strong combination. Yeah, no, there's just always a really improved. Yeah, there's There's just a lot going on there I wasn't aware of, you know, going on. It's just sort of just, we get a little bit of tunnel vision when we get focused on what we work on, but there's this no, and and they provide wonderful resources. I mean, when when we 
we're first starting to look at doing uh, qPCR on our own before we collaborated with you uh, you know that we could have we could have had all that stuff done in Claire Fraser's unit we could have had a lot of the sequencing done uh, in, in her unit also but excuse me <laughs> um, the uh, it's more fun to collaborate yeah <laughs> no we really appreciate it we've really enjoyed the collaborate that's one of the benefits you know it's a uh, I'm working with people all around the U.S. and around the world, you know, getting together and, um, you know, sharing experience. And it may actually makes some, while some people are slow, while some things slow things down, this is the type of stuff that speeds things up. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything Absolutely. we don't have to figure out on our own is, uh, you know, that we can just tap into some um, willing uh, expertise is, is fantastic. I, I can't even imagine if we had, I mean, yeah, your papers are great on the Xenograft, but just if we had just said, okay, we don't want to talk to Bob, we're just going to do it ourselves and read the papers. Yeah, I mean, it's there, but it's so much better to be able to send someone to your group and just learn all the hands. It's just like cooking, right? There's always these things that you just, right. it's just, it's just, you got to be there and see what's really good. And, and it's not, it's nothing that you're hiding. It's just, there's things you don't even think about putting in. We do this, just training someone in the lab, right? You just give them a protocol and it doesn't work. You go in and you see there's a little, little bit here a little bit there and you're you're so open to um to that I, that was great that you know julie's people are learning how to do this so the, the models coming to europe and uh um you know it just uh so so for everyone out there listening you guys you've heard me you know sometimes people say that i get sometimes i vent my frustrations on here here i'm venting my my enthusiasm for <laughs> for how science progresses and how fshd is just benefiting from some really great great people out uh out here so yeah i don't know when we're gonna um yeah i'm not sure but we gotta have guys we, we need to have a little probably a science catch-up offline <laughs> um off off recording line <laughs> well we should talk about the cell lines that you've uh that you've developed because i think the the mta was just approved oh that did and and uh so i'll be in touch maybe next week and we can talk about so it's interesting. Uh, I know. I know yeah, I will. Um, so some of y'all listening, I know who you are. Some of you. Um, it's uh participated. We, you know, um, Bill Lewis the third at UC Davis had a little biopsy program going where we got some new muscle biopsies. It's a, unfortunately a case of where we kind of had to reinvent the wheel. We needed um to get uh, some uh, muscle cell lines and made and then immortalized that didn't have some restrictions put on them that were put in place by some institutes that just well, whatever there's not again not everybody's helpful um but we were that's why bill uh, set this up and um so some of y'all out here on the west coast participated we got muscle biopsies um takako then grew the cells in the lab and we immortalized them uh and now we've shown they can xenograft uh into the bio using bob system here in reno and we just were sending them to bob to have them go in there again in in baltimore it's important to have it's important in science to have things replicated in different sites that see at the absolutely. same absolutely if it's only done one place you got to take it with a grain of salt that that is true because you just you just really this replication is a really important thing and i remember some advice um I was given, uh, oddly enough, Silver Vanderbilt gave me this advice when I first came into the field. Um, he said, follow the stuff that people follow up on. He may basically saying that there's a lot of one-off papers. There's a lot mm -hmm. of, there's a polite way to mm -hmm. say it, there's a lot of stuff in FSHD that can't be reproduced. And, mm -hmm. and so don't, don't waste, he's like, you know, you know, and um, and, you know, and also to do stuff somewhat of yourself that you see out, don't take anything you read sort of as, 
Okay, that's you. You, you, sound, you have to just make sure that everything is on the line. I think we're getting a better at that as a field. I think the science quality is going up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And uh, impressive. But there was up. a lot of it was really rough when we first got, and there was some some stuff out there that was hard to replicate. But but no, that's really. But that's uh, so yeah. So this is what's happening to some of your biopsies out there. These are going to be tools that are going to be made and. And you know what? I don't, you know, whatever, you know, we, if, if I had given a bite, you'd have a peat mouse out there somewhere getting a therapeutic <laughs> in a preclinical trial. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, this is, everybody's doing their part to get uh, new experimental uh, therapeutics to, to clinic. And, you know, we, we, have, we have our fingers crossed, I guess, for lesmapamod, you know, but uh, there's, I always tell everybody we got, in my opinion, better stuff coming. Hopefully, I think mm -hmm. there's FSHD specific. So, so last Absolutely. thing I want to what give me your what's your take on the near future for FSHD? What do you think? What are you excited about coming up? I mean, just your personal opinion it doesn't have to be any. Just I'm curious, what excites you in the therapeutic space or whatever space you want? What do you What do you like? It's a tough one because you know my lab doesn't really work on therapeutics. We're focused yeah, on other things, stuff out but... there. It's... You don't have to say my lab, with, by the way. Don't you can you can exclude my lab. <laughs> we're you know we're working with other people. You know we've helped, yeah. helped you guys. We're working with Miracule. We're working with Julie Demonceau. So the you know the the anti sense approach is I think potentially uh, very useful. The question is how to get the the reagents into the muscle fibers and not to dilute them in the rest of the tissues in the body or That's not to dilute them necessarily in into the healthy muscle fibers, but preferentially target them to the fibers that are about to turn on Dux4. But I think the, my guess is that some of the antibody oligoconjugates or possibly Stan Frainer's new methods for condensing uh, uh, large stretches of DNA onto an, uh, in, and coupling it to an antibody and introducing it that way is probably going to be the the next round of, of clinical trials. So I, I'm working with Miracule, but uh, Dyne Therapeutics, and uh, I think it's, is it Affinity? Avidity. Uh, Avidity, right. Yeah. They're, they're all working in the same space with antibody conjugates. There may be other companies out there also. The arrowheads out there and some others that we haven't gone public, yeah. So, you know, my guess is that that'll be the next, that'll be the next, uh, so I'm curious just to pick your brain out because you hit on actually the one thing that, you know, we've known since like 2011 that antisense works for against mm -hmm. ducks. I mean, Alexander Bell, you published that. It's actually mm -hmm. the same sequence. I think Dine's taken the clinic. Mm -hmm. We've known it's worked. The, the trick is to get it into the right cells at the mm -hmm. level, an efficacious level that's not toxic to the to people. Right. right. And, and I just always, you know, you hit on the thing that um, I think is the, the issue, which if 1% of the cells or fewer are expressing ducts forward, but you have to dose 100% of the cell, you got to load up all that. And that's a tremendous amount that's just sitting right. there doing nothing in a cell that's right. not doing anything that may never do anything. And you just got to keep that level. I mean, that it just strikes me that's a tough kind of targeting dosing sort of issue. But if you could, if you knew which cells to target, if you could Smart. We're working on it, Peter. We're working on it. All right. I'm glad to hear. <laughs> well, because the technology, I'm told I'm sold on the technology. I'm just, it's a dosing and targeting issue, right? And mm -hmm. I'm like, that's one of these things I tell people. Right. Well, you solve that. And I mean, because we know it works. 
you just got to kind of, these are kind of the details that big details. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. Okay, cool. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that's going. I know. Well, that's the thing. You got smart guys work. And that's why, you know, I hear there's uh, six companies or eight companies in Antisense. They all have a little different flavor, but that's great. Mm -hmm. Because there's eight of them to work. We just need one of them mm -hmm. to be better, you know, and then, mm -hmm. you know, and so mm -hmm. cool. That's a, uh, all right. Well, I, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to the results of, um, well, to those trials starting, I guess they're starting right. pretty soon. Avidity and then dying. And, and I actually appreciate Myracule's approach. Um, I've met, I know Anthony Sala, right. He has episodes, mm -hmm. but I've met him before. And I just appreciate, again, the sort of the, the slow and steady wins the race to just kind of there, mm -hmm. you know, make sure you have your best, you know, just, they just have a, I, I just kind of law thought I like, I appreciated and not them knocking any other company, but I just, the thoughtfulness and the way they're a little bit different mm -hmm. than maybe some others are thinking about things right. the way, and yeah, you're not going to be first to clinic, but you'd rather be best. In, and I'm not saying they're best. I'm not saying, I don't know anything. I just, by just the mentality mm -hmm. of, it just seemed like a bit of the scientific process. I really appreciated. He's very you know, meticulous. Yes. Yeah. I, he is I think very meticulous. Instead of just put the pedal down and go as fast as you can with what you got. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're going to, we're mm -hmm. going to give up give our, our shots going to be our best shot type of thing. That's how mm -hmm. we do our CRISPR is mm -hmm. it's just where, you know, what's, you know, yeah, we're tinkering here and there, but a little bit, you never know. I mean, you can do it forever. At some point you have to go to clinic. <laughs> right. But but I just I just really appreciated um, when I met with him and the thoughtfulness of it. And again, I'm not saying anybody's not thoughtful. I just that's uh, just something that really stood out from for me. With, with I know you have Christian is is working there now at Myricule. Right, right, right. I'm very happy that he's there, and apparently he's doing well. So I'm pleased. No, that's really cool. All right. Well, um, I really appreciate you you taking the time. You know, I've, I've talked about you a few times, you know, you know and uh, just again, I think the Xenograph model has been such a tremendous contribution um, to the uh, FSHD field, the neuromuscular in general. And and I'm not, you know, I really, again, Takako and I can all, all the time we just come up about how appreciative just between us talking um, uh, that with things that we've learned from you uh, in your lab directly and just from uh, collaborating with you and about how to how to do science and and also how to conduct ourselves as members of the scientific community. I don't want to get gushy, but I mean, honestly, I feel like that's sometimes <laughs> being a good scientist who's a who's a bad member of the scientific community is <laughs> uh, lacking. Well, as I've told you before, the feelings are mutual, Peter. All right. Well, really, hey, go out and buy Carissa's book, man. It's uh, get the Kindle version. Now you get the hard copy. You'll make her day. She keeps track of every every day. She's like, I didn't sell any today. So <laughs> she needs a boost. Does she know who buys them? No, but she knows if what country I think it's from or whatever. Oh, she, okay. she said something like her friend in Japan uh, said, "Oh, my book club's gonna buy the book," and then she's like, "I only sold one copy in Japan." <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're just passing it around. I don't know. Good, no, it's really funny. You know, you know, she's actually creative genius, just like Takako. In a different way, Takako, they're both, I just am truly blessed with creative geniuses. And and uh, I'm, for whatever reason, get a lot of more credit than I'm due. But, well, you share it pretty broadly, too. So. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you, you taking the time um, to, to share with us. And I like people to hear right from the source. And um, all right, everybody, we're going to, um, we'll be back in a sec and uh, wrap it on up. All right, man. Thanks, everyone. We appreciate it, Bob. Catch you later, okay? All right, Bob. Thanks a lot. Uh, really appreciate that uh, took the time to join us. You know, so, so yeah, you know, I, I, when I originally talked with Bob, I wasn't planning to bring up 
some of the sordid history behind all of this, but that's just hard. I don't know. You know, I just, I know y'all want to know why things take so long and, and, um, and yeah, it just, uh, honestly, when we think back about it, uh, we just, uh, well, we almost put out of business by, uh, a, we're basically the inappropriate actions of a, a scientific advisory board um <laughs> came all the way down the repercussions were to us being thrown out of umass medical school but you know it was a good thing for us in the end because we're really happy here at university of Arena school of medicine we're doing a lot more than we could do under the um under the oppression that we would have been under if we had stayed at umass med so it all turned out good but uh you know it's, uh, it shows you how important it is to have uh ethical people involved with uh yourself your research your foundation your life you know and not everybody's so ethical and uh you know it grinds me that basically there were no repercussions whatsoever um <laughs> to the people some of the people are still there and to me that makes them the foundation complicit in the um in the unethical activity uh, which is one of the reasons why we'll never work with them <laughs> ever uh, I take the Maya Angelou approach of when somebody shows you who they are, uh, believe them the first time, okay? But Bob's a lot more forgiving, and he wanted me to pass on that uh, a couple of things. First off, you know, first off, there was the detail of, you know, I'm not sure we get the details. Right. It's not clear that the grant was ever awarded or not awarded. It's clearly that it was killed by um, uh, somebody on the SAB with uh, um financial interests and competitive interests, and it was completely inappropriate, and they should have recused themselves. Um, there was an investigation. That's absolutely true, and they found themselves. It's like uh, Roger Goodell investigating the NFL owners. Hey, we didn't do anything wrong. We're all clear. Well, it's the same thing. Internal bull bullshit investigation found they had no, didn't do anything wrong because they had no rules. So, yeah, maybe some of the details exactly weren't quite exactly. I'm not clear. <laughs> Bob's a good guy. He tries to forgive and forget. Um, you know, although there are some people you can never forget, uh, not me, man, I hold a grudge um, because time and again, um, boy, when people, uh, have screwed us over and we've given them a second chance, they've been more than happy to screw us over tenfold the next time because they knew they can get away with it. So we just don't deal with that crap anymore. Um, but Bob wanted me to pass on that, uh, you know, he actually, uh, interestingly enough, uh, has a good relationship with the FSHD society. They have since supported him. Uh, with some of his work, he's got a good relationship with Jamshid, and uh, who was not present uh, at the, and not part of the foundation when this all went down originally. So there's somebody new in there, and you know, and so there have been some changes, hopefully for the better. Although you know what, I can just look at the website and tell you that some of the changes, <laughs> well, still need to be made. Anyway, um, we're really appreciative of people like Bob, and you should be too. You know, they're really good. You know, as much as you know, there's, you know, you can, you're starting to get a feel for what it takes to get stuff done in research, right? When everybody, you know, people put their own personal financial and competitive interests. And just remember, when I say financial interest, that can be making money from patents, that can be getting grants that are going to improve your yourself, that can be all, there's all sorts of things that, you know, go into these competitive interests and people fighting for, for funding. And it brings out the worst in some people and in other people like Bob, brings out the best. And so uh, and that's why we're really appreciative. There's multiple foundations out there. We're really appreciative. That's why we, we pick, we're very careful who we work with. I don't know what we would do without FSHD Canada Foundation and their support. We love the Friends of FSH Research. Um, 
a foundation. Now, there's a case of a foundation, if you go back to the mouse story, where we had an issue with the SAB and we brought it to their attention and they did something about it. FSHG Society, not so much. Um, the uh, FSHG Global, really appreciative of them as well. They're just doing a great job and really responsive to their constituents, bringing diagnostics and ultimately clinical trials, hopefully, to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, you know, and Chris Carino Foundation, you know, they've been, I know it's so much work to run these foundations. We're so appreciative of those families that put in the, all this time to do it. Um, Chris and Laura just doing a great job um, there. You know, again, with uh, um, Terry and Rick Colella at Friends and Neil Kamara up at, at uh, and uh, his wife, uh, Kathy, up at uh, FSHG Canada. And, you know, Solve FSHG is filling a niche that needed to be filled as well. That's just a different thing. So it's good to have multiple avenues for support. Um, <laughs> thank God there's no general contractor that can crush the competition um, and get things wrong. Just remember. You know, if decisions were up to one group, um, the Xenograph model wouldn't exist. The Flex Ducks 4 FSHD-like mouse model wouldn't exist. And our mini pig model wouldn't exist. All of these critical tools for getting therapeutics to, to um, clinic were all rejected soundly and thoroughly and tried to, and frankly, as far as I'm concerned, they tried to be stopped um, by, you know, uh, the big, the big player in town because uh, they wanted control and to monetize it and have the wrong and have the wrong agenda. Um, so thank God for the small businesses out there and the small foundations out there that are doing the big work and the heavy lifting that others take credit for. Um, all right. So uh, hey, anyways, thanks a lot, Bob. Love to have you on. Can't we'll have you on again. Catch up maybe on some more. We could have talked forever, so we'll get you on some more. And uh, I let you all go. Hope you all have a good weekend. And um, all right, man. Catch you later.